0: Job chapter 12 this evening and our journey through the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. And while we're turning there, if you don't have a Bible and you're with us tonight, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles, just wave to them and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands and you'll be able to follow along and uh, read with us this evening as we study the word. Now, Job has uh, three uh, friends. Uh, I'm less and less hesitant to use the term. The longer we go, and all of you understand why, he has a friend by the name of Eliphaz, a friend by the name of Bildad, and a friend by the name of Zophar. And the whole pattern of what's happening in this section of the book of Job is, is that they're basically accusing him of the same thing, that all of these calamities have come into his life because of secret sin in his life, sin that he's keeping secret, which is hypocrisy, and this is why God is judging him in the way that he is. Nothing could be further from the truth, but that is their theology, and they are not going to budge from it until God himself begins to speak into the whole situation. The pattern is something like this. One of them would speak to Job. Job would then defend himself against their accusations. No sooner would he finish his defense, and then one of the other friends would jump in against him. He would then defend himself against that one. The third one would jump in. And they're really ganging up on him when he's in, in great need of comfort and not in any need of any kind of a word fight uh, or any kind of a fight with anyone, let alone his friends. And this man by the name of Zophar in chapter 11, he has finished his uh, rebuke of Job and called to repentance by telling Job that despite the fact that he has lost all of his children uh, to death, he has lost all of his, his health, he has lost his wealth, he's lost his position and his reputation, that if the truth were really made known... God was going light on him. Uh, the judgment that he deserved was an, even, was an even greater judgment. And what's happening is the longer this discussion goes on between Job and his friends, because Job will not ju- because Job will not pacify them by saying what he knows is untrue. He will not say, oh, you're right, I've got secret sin, I'm a secret hypocrite, and then now maybe this will end the whole mess. He won't do it, out of his own convictions between him and God. And he's a man of very deep principle. And, but he also doesn't want to mislead his friends in what is just clearly a wrong understanding of God. And so the more he resists their call to re- confess his sin and repent it, the more agitated they become. There's a, a verse in the book of Proverbs said that the righteous man studies how to answer. And the word how is important. To really be able to help people, anybody, but especially people who are hurting. A a righteous man, a person that wants to really be helpful in that situation, has to be a person who not only uh, gives great attention to what they're saying, but also to how they're saying it. And these men are not giving any attention to either. What they're saying is absolutely wrong. And they're getting more and more angry with, uh, with Job. And they, and this begins to show and how cutting and how biting their words are. But it's good for us, again, this section of the book of Job, just to be reminded, is the idea is that we listen to these men over and over again. And in some, perhaps for some of us, a very, very small measure, we will recognize Our own tendency to be that way in such a situation or to answer in such a way, either the wrong thing or an anger, become agitated or what might be, and be so appalled by what we see in somebody else that we then look and say, Lord, I don't want to be like that in any situation. Again, so often. What we learn in life is by seeing ourselves in a very unsightly way in another person and going, oh my, Lord, that's what that looks like? When that comes out of my life, please, would you eradicate this from my life? And this section of the book of Job is intended to do that. One final thing before we get into the Word. There's another passage that's important for us to understand also And it's from the book of James, and it says that the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. When we get angry in a discussion, and certainly it's even uh, more exaggerated in terms of it's important when we're dealing with suffering people, but it's always true, once we're angry and we begin to speak even the truth in anger we are not going to produce the righteousness of God in that situation because God, is not, God does not use fleshly or human anger to solve problems or to advance problems. All it does is create it, it, it creates a relational problem between two people that is more damage than. Uh, uh, more damaging than a lack of some kind of intellectual knowledge or understanding that they might have. So you can explain to your wife or explain to your husband all that you want, the truth about the situation, but once we've become angry and we begin to say it in anger, now the, da- the relationship is damaged and they're not hearing truth at all and now this thing takes Two steps backward, and so it's always good to remember that as once we begin to, that starts to fire in us, and this is really firing in them. They are offended that Job is standing up to them when they're all in agreement with what's wrong here, and that wrath, uh, that wrath of man, uh, is is starting to come out in a, a very very ugly uh, way. So now we come to chapter 12, and we begin uh, our evening. And so here is uh, Job's response, not only to Zophar, but also to all of his friends. And then Job answered and he said, No doubt you are the people, and, said, and wisdom will die with you. This is dripping with sarcasm. If you've ever, it's actually a pretty, uh, pretty good uh, verse to, to memorize. <laughs> You can never use it, but it's good to have. (laughs) Sometimes I just look at something and say, oh, truth will die with you. And here you got these, I mean, it's like Job looks at him and says, you know, one hand grenade and all of you are dead and truth will disappear from human history. And he's really, now he's getting combative, he's getting defensive, and he's basically saying, Um, He's rebuking. They're so smug in their assessment. And the problem that Job has is he knows they're wrong. He knows that what they're saying, for all the words and all the force, he knows they are wrong. And so he just is rebuking their sense of smugness, their sense of certainty when he knows that it's, it's wrong. If you guys die, then the world is going to be left without wisdom. But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you. And so he reminds them that he's as smart as they are. And isn't it sad that this discussion where a man, is all he wants is a little bit of comfort and sympathy from his friends, now we've got a discussion on who's the smartest and who is treating the other person like a dummy and, and all of that. And, of course, they're provoking this out, out, of, uh, out of him. And he says, I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to to you. And so this whole the point he's making is that this whole idea that in general, God does bless the righteous and he does judge or curse the wicked. He says, listen, I know all that. I know everything that you're saying to me, but you're answering questions I am not asking. I know all of that about God. I know that that's a general truth. It is not always true because, as he'll bring out later, there's Many cases you can look at in the world today where the unrighteous are prospering. They advance to very high levels in government or high levels in business and reputation in the world. and. They're prospering and their judgment won't come upon them until this life is over. So he's saying, I know everything that you're, that you're saying here. I know that this truth that you're speaking is, is a, a general truth, but it doesn't have anything to do with me. Indeed, who does not know such things as these? You guys are masters of the obvious. And then he begins to poke a, a hole in their theory that the righteous are Always blessed in this life or that the wicked are always cursed in this life. And he uses himself in verse one as exhibit number one. He knows he's righteous and yet he says, look at me. I am mocked. I am one mocked by his friends who called on God and God answered him. I'm a godly person. I have a relationship with God. God and I are on good terms and the just and the blameless who is ridiculed. So he brings forth his innocence and he says, you have this case, the righteous are always blessed, never judged in this life. I am an exception to that. And he gives other exceptions as well. A lamp is despised and the thought of one who is at ease. It is made ready for those whose feet slip. The tent of robbers prosper and those who provoke God are secure in what God provides by his hand. And so he makes the point, you look around, he says, you see people who are thieves, they're robbers, they're sinners, they're criminals, and they're prospering in the world. And that's the same world that we live in. I mean, look at, uh, just take the drug lords as an example. I mean, just wealth beyond imagination and whatever. I mean, who would want the life? What a crummy life. But you see, wickedness and sin, is a, it's a prosperous thing in the world today. And and so we can look in our world today too and realize, it's just as Job is saying, is I can poke holes in your theory that the righteous are always judged and God is always, you know, uh, going to hammer them this side of uh, uh, eternal judgment. And it just doesn't, this isn't the world that we're living in. It doesn't match reality. And then they had accused um, it was Zophar who had accused Job of uh, the odds of him becoming a wise man were less than a donkey giving birth to a man. That's pretty low, isn't it? Um, but, and so Job now, you know, he can hold his own here. I'm not saying that the Holy Spirit's involved, but now he begins to, you want to talk animals? I'll talk animals to you. So he said, "But now ask the beasts, and they will teach you." And the idea is, animals are smarter than you three. The birds of the air. I don't know when you've had a, last have had an intelligent conversation uh, with the birds in your backyard. Um, if you do, please let one of the pastors know, so we can watch you during the service. So, and the birds of the air, and they will tell you. Or speak to the earth, and it will teach you. The fish of the sea will explain to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this, in whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? And so he said, listen, if you don't want to believe me, go talk with nature, you know, and and talk with the animals. And the animals will tell you that there's, that sometimes uh, the good die young. And there isn't a rhyme or reason the way that you have everything tied up. Even in the animal kingdom, they recognize that this uh, theory of theirs... Uh, doesn't hold up. He said, does not the ear test words? And he starts to talk about things that go together. Ears go with hearing, don't they? And the mouth uh, goes with tasting food. And the idea is that wisdom uh, or aged men, wisdom should go with aged or older men and with length of days. And so he's basically saying ears are for uh, hearing, the mouth is for tasting And wisdom ought to come out of the life of an aged man. And the idea is that it is not coming out uh, of their lives. Uh, As old as they were, they weren't exhibiting any kind of wisdom. And then he begins to speak. They've been lecturing him on the greatness and the power and the almightiness of God. Again, they're answering a question Job is not asking. Job never doubted the power of God. Job understands all about the power of God. What he doesn't know is... Why is has this come into his life? His whole thing is why. Why, 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 why? We all understand that. We can know, I mean, most of us in this room, we acknowledge the almightiness of God. We don't, I, I, we don't go to him about some doubt concerning his power. Our questions are have to do with why, in the light of his power, is this going on in our life. And so he's, he's basically saying, I understand about the mightiness of God as well as you do. With him, that is God, are wisdom and strength. He has counsel and understanding. If he breaks a thing down, it cannot be rebuilt. If he imprisons a man, there's no release. If he upholds the waters, then they dry up. If he sends them out, They overwhelm the earth like a flood. With him are strength and prudence. The deceived and the deceiver are his. He leads counselors away plundered. So he's not only almighty in nature, but almighty uh, related to men. And he makes fools of the judges. Oh, I am so tempted. (laughs) He loosens the bonds of kings. I'll let you fill in the blanks. So he loosens the bonds of kings and binds their waist with a belt. He leads princes away, plundered, and overthrows the mighty. He deprives the trusted ones. These are uh, leaders within a nation. He deprives them of speech, and he takes away the discernment uh, of the elders. And he pours out contempt on princes and disarms the mighty. He uncovers the deep things out of darkness. He brings the shadow of death to light. He makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and guides them. He takes away the understanding of the chiefs of the people of the earth and he makes them wander. Again, speaking of the leaders of nations, he makes them wander in a pathless darkness. They grope in the dark without light and he makes them stagger like a drunken man. All right, now everything's making sense to me about what comes out of Washington, (laughs) D.C. Chapter 13. Job continues his uh, rebuttal and rebuke of of his uh, friends. And basically what he says here in the first 19 verses is, I want to talk to somebody who knows what they're talking about, which means I don't want to talk to you anymore. I want to talk to God. And so he begins to rebuke his friends. He said, Behold, my eye has seen all this. My ear has heard and understood it. What you know, I also know. I'm not inferior to you. But I would speak to the Almighty. I want to talk with God because you guys are of no help to me at all. And I desire to reason with God. And But he said, you are forgers of lies. So again, here he, they're making the accusation, all of your problems are because there is secret sin in your life. And again, as we began the book, some of you are new to the study here in the last couple of weeks, we don't need any help. When tragedy comes into our life, a great loss comes into our life. For many of us, the first thought that we think of is God's angry with me. Uh, this is there must be something wrong with me that I'm not aware of, or some sin in my life that I'm not aware of. This is you know God is doing this to me, and then to have three friends just say it to you over and over and over again, and and nurture it inside of you. But He knows that it's it's all wrong, and so He says, "You're forgers of lies. It's a lie that you're telling me." that my problems are caused by the suffering is due to sin. And then he called, he said, you are all worthless physicians. And this has to do with the fact that uh, they are worthless physicians in that their diagnosis of him is wrong. If a physician, if a physician, boy, this cold medicine, There was, they didn't say there was any alcohol in it. If the doctors can't diagnose you right, then they have no hope of getting the remedy right. So he's given up on them. He knows their diagnosis of him is wrong. So what they're proposing is the remedy, confession of sin and repentance then that's wrong too. So he said, you're worthless. And of course, a physician is worthless if he can't diagnose properly and then prescribe properly. He said, oh, that you would be silent and it would be your wisdom. He said, that's the best way that you guys could show your wisdom is just by... Uh, not talking and, and not speaking any anymore because when they speak, they're only putting their foolishness on display. Reminds us of a proverb, that in Proverbs chapter 17 verse 28, even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he's considered perceptive. Guy can be the dumbest person in the whole world, but if he doesn't say something all day long, you don't know. He may be the smartest guy in the whole world, and, he prob- and you just think he must be smart because he's not engaging in these conversations that we're having. There's a kind of a more human take on the whole thing that goes like this: It's better to keep silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt. And that's that's what he's accusing them of. He said, "Now hear my reasoning, and heed the pleadings." Of my lips. And he's just, again, he's just saying, all, would you get off of your religious, false theological theory that you're on? You're like a record that just will not get off of that place. Would you just stop and listen to what I'm saying instead of being so eager to defend a God that isn't in need of your defense? He just wants some comfort. Would you listen? Hear my reasoning and heed the pleadings of my lips. Will you speak wickedly for God? And now he rebukes them uh, for uh, speaking wrongly for God in saying it is sin in your life and all these things. And they're not just saying, hey, in my opinion or I think or, you know, in my experience. They're claiming to speak for God in this assessment. That's a big deal to speak for God. Your qualifying statements are significant. If somebody says, the Lord says, you are to do this or this, or this is happening for this reason. That's one thing. If somebody says, you know, as best as I can understand the situation, here's what I think is going on. I mean, now you've gone from infinite to finite, severely finite. Because my opinion, and $70 are getting a cup of coffee at Starbucks actually it's 450 and I'm not picking on them cuz I do like it so our opinions don't mean anything but this is this is what it, they're doing they're speaking for god and job is saying man where is your fear of god you speak wickedly for god you you're saying lies in god's name and you t- and talk deceitly for him deceitfully for him will you uh, show partiality for him. In other words, judging by outward appearances. Will you contend for God? Will it be well when he searches you out? Or can you mock him as one mocks a man? He will surely rebuke you if you secretly show partiality. And so Job is saying, basically, he said, boy, you guys are going to get it. I know I'm innocent, and God's going to bring my innocence forward. And when He does, you guys are going to be found out to be liars, and you've been lying in God's name. And Job had it right because God would do that. We're going to wait. I'll have to wait all the way till chapter 47 or 42 to to hear it. But I'll just read a little bit of it to you right now, verse seven. And so it was after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite. He was the oldest of the three, apparently. He said, my wrath is aroused against you. Uh-oh. And your two friends <laughs> and your little dog too. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't even name the other two by name. I mean, they've gotten so harsh with Job. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. And now, therefore, take for yourself seven bulls, seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer up. For yourself a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept him lest I deal with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. And so Job was saying, you guys are going to be in big trouble, and they were. Job went on in verse 11 and said, Will not his excellence make you afraid and the dread of him fall upon you? He's just saying, guys, where is the fear of God to speak in his name and you are not saying what is true about him? Your platitudes or your kind of religious cliches that everybody fits into this pattern and all suffering is because of of sin, your platitudes are proverbs of ashes they 're worthless. Your defenses are defenses of clay, in other words, easily broken. He says, "I can break up your arguments and, and have been you can drive a truck through the holes in your arguments uh, because all of life around us testifies to the fact that the wicked do not always suffer, and the righteous uh, are, uh, are not always exempt from suffering hold your peace with me and let me speak and then let come on me what may why do I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hands and this image of my flesh and my teeth is the image of an animal let's say a wolf or something that has a, a rabbit a prey that it is uh, it is caught and then now it's attacked by another animal and it has to drop the prey to defend itself and so Uh, Job is again talking about his need to defend himself. But the, the point that he's making is, why would I ask for an audience with God to establish my innocence the way that I have been if there's secret sin in my life? Why would I do that if God might show up at any time before you three and then expose real secret sin in my life? People that have secret sin in their life don't say, I want an audience with God. And I want him to bring all the truth out. They don't do that. Uh, someone who's very convinced of their innocence is asking for what Job is asking for. And he said, though they slay, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. And so he's having all these things that he's dealing with related to his faith, all of his why questions but his faith in God remains intact. There are crises of faith that occur in the life in some people's lives because they lack a faith in God. They don't know him well yet. They don't know his power yet. They don't have experience with God yet. But there is another crisis of faith that occurs in a person who knows God very very well where it is, it is not a crisis of faith where they doubt God's power. There's A lot of people have a crisis of faith because they're immature in their faith, so to speak. I mean, we can all face it, but immature in their faith. And their crisis of faith is they doubt the power of God. But a mature Christian like Job is, so to speak, here, his crisis of faith is a different one, and his crisis of faith is this, in that he knows the power of God. He knows that God can change his circumstances in one second and that he won't break a sweat doing them. He does not doubt the power of God. The crisis of his faith is why God doesn't do it right now when he has the means to do it. Those are two different crises. And Job is having the latter crisis of faith. So he's not doubting the existence of God, the power of God, the nature of God, any of those things I'm yet going to trust him even though my circumstance is confusing me uh, at uh, the, uh, the moment. And so he sticks with him. I think, about, and I think about this particular passage. And I think about it a lot in a lot of different passages in the Bible where in John chapter 6, it's a very powerful uh, part of Jesus' ministry where he's just finished feeding the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And now he's got this gigantic crowd because now he's like this, uh, you know, canteen vending machine. All you got to do is just follow him around. He teaches and then he feeds you afterward. So there are a lot of people that are following him at this point and he's very, very popular, but their hearts aren't right. They're not really interested in spiritual things or in him. He's just a meal ticket for them. So he begins to speak some very, very hard things to that. Uh, group now that numbers in the thousands before him and about what it's going to mean to be his disciple and to follow him. And as he's speaking these things, the crowd begins to fade away before him. I mean, he's going from uh, the very uh, last thing that anybody, you don't see it in any kind of ministry magazine, how to take a church from thousands to twelve in one sermon Uh, But that's about what he does. And this great crowd with all of their mixed motives are filtering away now as Jesus is speaking to the truth to them. And as they are filtering away, the disciples are watching all of this. And Jesus turned to them. And I think it's one of the most amazing pictures of, of vulnerability of God in all of the scriptures. And he said, will you leave also? In other words, this is the truth about following me. I don't have a second sermon for you. This is... Not being said for effect or anything like this. This is what it means to follow me. Are you guys on board or you're not on board? And Peter looked at him and he spoke for all of them. And he said, where would we go? For you have the words of everlasting life. And we have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God. He said, I don't, we don't have an option of going anywhere else. You have completely spoiled us walking with you from ever being satisfied with following anyone or anything else in this big, wide world, and it's it's wonderful to be spoiled in that way. I, I have no inclination to go back into the world or back into my previous sins or anything, but I do realize that if I ever did that, the capacity to even enjoy those sins like I did before I came to know Christ is completely gone. It's gone. I'll never be able to do that again. I don't want to, but I, it, it, it's good to know that, that there's, there's no future and that there's no why turn to it. And that when Peter says that, where would we go for you have the words of everlasting life? It means he thought about it. He looked at the whole, the whole wide world and all of the options to following Jesus when Christianity gets hard. And he said, I don't see anything that I would leave a walk with Christ, even when it gets hard for in the whole wide world. There's nothing in front of me. And so that commitment, and here's the same thing with Job. His faith is sustained here in the Lord, even though he's questioning why. And even so I will defend my own ways before him. And and he also shall be my salvation, for a hypocrite could not come Before him, listen carefully to my speech and to my declaration with your ears. See now, I have prepared my case. I know that I shall be vindicated. So he has the confidence that one day, he doesn't know why these things are happening, but he knows one day God is going to vindicate him and bring forth his innocence before his friends and the whole wide world as well, because he's being persecuted on a larger level, as we're going to see a little bit later. And so there's the confidence God is going to, uh, in some way, bring forth my innocence and, and, uh, and, and God will validate that. And he said, who, who is he who will contend with me if now I hold my tongue? I will perish. So again, he's not going to be bullied by his friends. He's not going to be, um, you know, shoved down, uh, uh, shouted down by them and, and uh, the way that they're ganging up on him and, and tell them, all, oh, you're all right, you guys are right and I'm wrong and everything just for some kind of a peace. He's still got a backbone in the middle of it and he's a mess, but he's not going to back down. Again, not only for his reputation, but for their good as well. Only two things I... And he's speaking to God, only two things do not do to me, then I, will not, then I will not hide myself from you. So again, Job is wanting to meet God in court, but he wants to meet with God in court under these conditions. So he can talk to God about bringing forth his innocence. Uh, he says, these are the, th- the two things that I, don't, uh, that I uh, ask of you. I don't want you to withdraw your hand far from me. In other words, to, uh, or he, he is asking to, that he would withdraw, God withdraw his hand far from him, in other words, bring an end to his suffering, and let not the dread of you make me afraid. So when we, uh, if, I, if I'm asking f- to meet you in court, and if you decide to show up sometime and uh, take me up on the offer, um, I'm a little shaky right now, and it would probably scare me to death. so would you not uh, do that? And then call and I will answer or let me speak and then you respond to me. And how many are my iniquities and sins? Make me know my transgression and my sin. Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? And this is so sad because none of it's true. But these friends have put this in his mind. I mean, already the devil has been allowed to take so much out of his life. I mean, the only thing he still has in his life is his wife. From his previous kind of life and existence, it's all gone. And now these three guys are trying to destroy the only thing that's got him holding on, and that's his relationship with God and what he knows to be true about God. That he loves God. God loves him and, and, and all. And, they're, and so they've got him thinking things about God that aren't true. It's so important that we represent God well. In talking with people in any conversation, but especially these conversations. Why do you hide your face and regard me as your enemy? Nothing could have been further from the truth. Will you frighten a leaf driven to and fro? And will you pursue dry stubble? In other words, am I worth the trouble? I'm like a dry leaf... Run around by the wind and it seems like you're doing the same thing to me. For you write bitter things against me and make me inherit the iniquities of my youth. Now this can just make you angry. And there is, some, there is something called a righteous anger too. That does have to be expressed once in a while. They got him so thinking that his problems are because of sin... And he knows it's not because of any current willful, deliberate wrongdoing in his life or sin. So now he thinks, I'm getting clobbered for what I did when I was 10 years old or 13 years old or 17 years old. And who wants to go back there? And so this is a terrible, terrible place because now he's going to search through his past and God is just letting me have it because of some sin that I did way back when. You have put my feet, and none of it's true. You have put my feet in the stocks and watch me close and watch closely all my paths and you set a limit for the soles of my feet. In other words, I feel like you're like a guard with a prisoner in jail. You never take your eye off of me. And, of course, his prison cell is his physical kind of condition. And, again, none of this is really true. And then he begins to talk about uh, the difficulties of life And verse 28. Really, verse 28 belongs in verse 14. So we'll pick it up. And, basically, what he's saying to God is, is God, isn't life difficult enough for man? in the fallenness of this world without having you pile on in all of this. And again, it's not true. He misunderstands the circumstance, but that's, that, that, that's what he's saying. Life is hard enough without all of, uh, all of this. He said man decays like a rotten thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. So just slowly but surely uh, we are deteriorating. Isn't that the truth? We won't go into it and elaborate, uh, but it does uh, uh, does happen. So he's just talking about that's the course of life. Man who is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower. Uh, you know, you never see an ugly baby and then fades away. Uh, he flees like a shadow and does not continue. In other words, life is short and it's full of Uh, trouble and then he said and do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me to judgment with yourself who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean no one and here's job acknowledging what paul would say in the book of romans there is none righteous no not one as here's the recognition by job is that all people all human beings are sinners in this world and so the point that he's making is since sinfulness is universal, then, God, shouldn't you be uh, somehow a little more understanding uh, of it and a little more understanding of its place in our life? And God, of course, has done something much better than become understanding of sin. He has provided a way of salvation from sin so that so that Job's looking for, like, you know, here's this kind of, uh, the argument he's kind of laying out is an inferior thing to what God has supplied for us. Here's the deal where um, can't you be more understanding of our sin and just, you know, um, let us remain the way that we are and bless us in that condition. And God says, no, I've got something better in mind than that. I will forgive you of your sins through a Savior I'll send into the world. And then through that Savior, I will raise you up, to live a holy and a pure life. And even the possibility of a sinless life, though none of us uh, live that, but the possibility is there in Christ. And since his days are numbered, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. Look away from him that he may rest till like a hired man he finishes his day. And so basically he says, Uncle, uh, God, would you just look away so I can die in peace. For there is hope for a tree. We're we'll see the word hope repeated in this passage a little bit. And basically, he's going to say now, there's more hope for a tree that's cut down than for me, than my life, which is cut down and near death. For there is hope for a tree, if it's cut down, that it will sprout again and that its tender shoots will not cease. Though its root may grow old in the earth and its stump may die in the ground, Yet at the scent of water, it will bud and bring forth branches like a plant. And so, I don't know, Some of, probably a lot of us have cut down a tree in our yard or something in the course of our life and wanted it to be dead and then found out that, boy, as soon as it got some water, it wants to be a tree again. And uh, life just comes back up uh, through it again. And yet... When a man dies, he's laid away. There's no kind of life in the branches or anything. And indeed, he breathes his last. And then where uh, is he? And so we, man doesn't leave a stump behind uh, that still has life in it. We leave a body behind that has no life in it. And as water disappears from the sea and a river becomes parched and dried up, so man lies down and does not rise. There's no hope, he says, for man in death. He said, Til the war, till the heavens are no more, they will not awake nor be roused from their sleep. Oh, that you would hide me in the grave, that you would conceal me until your wrath is past. And so uh, he wonders if there's a way that God could just kind of let him die until all of this is over, whatever God is doing, and then allow him to come back to life again uh, to, uh, for a, a second chance, at least long enough to see uh, God uh, you know, vindicate him before his accusers, that you would conceal me until your wrath is passed, that you would then appoint me a set time and remember me, cause me to rise from the dead so I can see you guys, set, see you set these three guys straight. If a man dies, shall he live again? And, of course, the answer to that is absolutely yes, but Job is not dealing with, um, you know, the kind of, Clarity that we have as it relates to uh, death, we have great uh, clarity because of the resurrection of Jesus and what happens at death and what happens after death and Jesus' victory uh, over death. And so Jesus's answer to that cry, if a man dies, shall he live again? Jesus speaking uh, to Martha said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, yet shall he live and he who lives and believes in me, that's you and I in this room, shall never die. And, and so we'll never cease to exist. We lay these tents down and we go straight into heaven, but we never ever uh, cease to exist, not even for a second. But he's dealing with the revelation that he has uh, in in the Old Testament and, and a, a much smaller uh, kind of, uh, base of base of knowledge. And so... All the days of my hard service, I will wait till my change comes. If you call and I, if you you shall call and I will answer you, you shall desire the work of your hands. For now you number my steps, but do not watch over me. My transgression is sealed up in a bag and you cover my uh, iniquity. And then he starts to talk about the inevitability uh, of death. Uh, For people as a mountain falls and crumbles away and as a rock is moved from its place, as water wears away stones and as torrents wash away the soil of the earth, so you destroy the hope of man. In other words, death comes uh, quickly, death comes slowly. And so he talks about a rainstorm that washes away a hillside. Uh, death coming very quickly. Then he talks about water that runs on a rock, and it can run on a rock for years and decades and hundreds of years before it wears through that rock. Death comes slowly. And he's using very poetic language to uh, describe all of it, but the inevitability of death for uh, human beings, and thus the reason that we need to have an answer for death, and Jesus is that answer. You prevail forever against him and he passes on. You change his countenance and he is sent away. And that's a description of death, the change of countenance. You've never been to a a funeral service where they've done an open uh, casket and ever seen uh, uh, a dead body uh, look as good as when the person was alive. And that's because the countenance has changed. And that's what Job is talking about here. And that's why... um, When I die, there won't be an open casket. There won't be a casket. I'm a Scot, and the cheapest way to deal with all of this is just to burn the whole thing. But my wife better never get rid of that urn. I want it on the mantle for the rest of her life. His son shall come to honor, and he does not know it. In other words, once you die, you don't know what's continuing to happen with your family. They're brought low and he does not perceive it, but his flesh will be in pain over it and his soul will torment over it. And with this uh, section here now, it, begin, it it's the end of the first series of discussions between Job and his three friends. And there are two more uh, series of discussions that they have. And if you sit here tonight and you think, well, they... They can't think of anything worse to say to Job um, than you haven't read the book of Job. It gets a lot worse. And, uh, and, and well, let's tear into it. Chapter 15. So Eliphaz, he's, up for, he's going to take a second swing at Job. And so Eliphaz the Temanite, he answered all of these things that Job is saying here. And he said, should a man answer with empty knowledge, your knowledge is empty, and fill himself with the east wind. The east wind was the wind that came out of the desert, the Sirocco, so he's accusing him again of being full of hot air. Should he reason with unprofitable talk or by speeches which which can do no good? In other words, everything that Job is saying is useless. Now we think to ourselves, you know, a lot of times, when people will say something hurtful toward another person, they kind of get it off of their chest, and and then and then they'll pull back, and they'll be a little bit kinder the next time that they speak. And so, why in the world do these men get uh, more and more and more cruel with their words toward? Uh, Job, And the reason that they do that is that these conversations with Job have, by now, I mean, long ago ceased to be at all about comforting Job. And now they are 100% about proving Job wrong. Because when Job claims that he is innocent of secret sin, and yet he is experiencing the kind of troubles that he is experiencing, then... That violated everything that they knew about God. And if goodness did not, the goodness in a person didn't protect a person from what happened to Job, in other words, living a good life and a godly life can't protect your health and your wealth and your relationships in the way that it didn't with Job, then what happened to Job might happen to them. That was so terrifying of a thought and so unthinkable to them that they've got to beat this guy. They have got to defeat him uh, in the argument, and so that's why this gets harsher and harsher and harsher. He said... Yes, you cast off fear and restrain prayer before God. And he accuses Job of of lacking a fear of God. You're not using any restraint when you talk about God or what you would do if you were able to talk with God. For your iniquity te- teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. In other words, only a person who's Heart is filled with a deep wickedness with say the kind of things that you're saying. In other words, you, you, are guilty, you are worthy of the judgment that has come upon you just on the basis of the things that you're saying since your judgment. I mean, it, it, who can imagine how terrible the secret sin is in your life? Are you the first man who was born? Here we go. Here comes the sarcasm. You the first one? do you predate Adam? Were you there when everything was being done? were you uh, or were you made before the hills or the creation? Have you heard the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? Are you so unteachable? What do you know that, uh, what do you know that we do not know? This is constructive. What do you understand that is not in us? Both the gray haired and the aged are among us? Look around you 're not seeing any regular hair you get from birth is you've got a bunch of gray hairs around you. And so we're uh, we're wise, much older than your father. And so they're claiming, listen, we're older by virtue of the fact that we're older, we are wiser than you, and you ought to listen uh, to us. And that's not always true. The Bible talks about the hoary head or the white head or the white-haired man or woman. And that, it, uh, that that is to be honored in godliness. And, and so when you find someone who is elderly and godly, then that's a wonderful combination. But you can have uh, gray hair and be a horrible human being and, uh, or have gray hair and be misrepresenting God is what they're doing here. Are the consolations of God too small for you and the word spoken gently with you? Now this is just like, this is chutzpah. This is noif right here in verse 11. And they're saying, are the comforts that we've spoken to you from God and the words that we've spoken gently to you, I mean, is, is, is is that too small a thing for you? Do you not appreciate all the comforting and gentle things that we've said to you? This person should never, ever go into any kind of counseling if he thinks what he has done has been comforting and gentle and yet uh, somehow he's uh, got it convinced in his mind. Why does your heart carry you away and what do your eyes wink at that you turn your spirit against God and let such words go out of your mouth? And um, why it, what is man that he could be pure And he who is born of a woman, that he could be righteous. If God puts no trust in his saints and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is abominable and filthy and drinks iniquity like water. So, but Job was not saying that he was sinless or that people are sinless. He's already laid that case. He's just saying... I am not living in open, deliberate, willful sin in my life right now. He's not saying I'm not a sinner or that the world isn't filled with sinners. So, again, they are answering questions that Job is not asking and they're not helping. And, in fact, uh, they're really, uh, you know, making things messier and messier. How much, in verse 16, how much less man who is abominable and filthy and drinks iniquity like water. And so this is the kind of accusation that's being made against Job, kind of a veiled accusation. And and, uh, so what Eliphaz is doing here is a very common uh, tactic in debate, and that is when you're losing the argument on substance... And they are, they are all losing the argument on substance. They cannot answer the why question and they cannot uh, uh, disprove uh, Job's contention that the righteous do suffer in this life and the wicked do prosper at times in this life. And so what they resort to now is they move away from dealing with facts and, and dealing with the issues to now a personal attack. And this is one of the reasons that I just am dreading the coming here, uh, here in the United States of America, leading up to what is probably going to be the dirtiest election in our history, certainly in our lifetimes. And you're going to see this over and over and over again in debate where the issues are not debated, but the attack becomes personal because one side cannot, on the basis of truth or on the basis of of superiority on the position, or, uh Uh, turn away the other opinion or they just go to, you know, slinging mud like everyone else. And so this is, it now becomes a personal attack against Job and this becomes, of course, even more painful for him. I will tell you, hear me, what I have seen, I will declare. What wise men have told, not hiding anything received from the fathers to whom alone the land was given and no alien uh, passed among them. He said, what I'm going to tell you now is what old men and wise men have believed for generations. Now, here's a problem with that, and it's an important lesson from the book because they're going to keep coming back to this. Again, what an older person says is to be tested by the Word of God the same way that something that a younger person says. Because the Bible is truth and not... No one else has, has that kind of truth. The Bible is to test everything that declares itself to be, to be truth. And, and so there's this idea that as long as something is old and it's been around a long time, that it must be true. And, and sometimes there's a lot of things that are even within our culture, certainly true of religion, where you see religious systems today. You have hundreds of millions of people that adhere to religious systems that claim to be Christian. And if anybody gets saved in those religious systems, it's because they believe contrary to the teaching of the religious system. Just because something's been around for a long time doesn't mean that it represents truth. When Jesus came on the scene, and he began to speak about the need for salvation, he began to speak about how what the... Pharisees and the scribes had turned Judaism into what God had never intended it to be. The Old Testament was not written so that people could roll up their sleeves and now attempt to establish a righteousness before God by keeping this 613 rules or commandments on their own. The law was given to expose us as sinners that no one can keep a law for salvation. And so once we're exposed as sinners, the next question becomes, is there a Savior to save me from my sin? And then the Holy Spirit leads us to Jesus. But you had hundreds of years of Jews, teaching of the Jews and Gentiles that this was the meaning of the Old Testament, that this was a works-based salvation and a works-based salvation God that they were worshiping. And Jesus comes on the scene and He turns the whole thing on its head. And He returns the law of Moses and the Old Testament to its original intent on the basis of God. And that it is something to bring us, to drive us to God and to the Savior that God has sent. So he's doing the same thing. He He turned hundreds of years of religious tradition upside down because even though it it, it was firmly entrenched, had existed for a long time, it was wrong. So nothing is true just because it's been around for a long time. There's a particular religious system that I think of uh, today has been around for almost 2,000 years and declares itself to be Christian and to represent the way for a person to be saved. And I would contend that if that religious system did not have 1,900 years of history behind it, to give it some kind of legitimacy where people look and say, they can't be wrong. I mean, that's been around for 1,900 years. How can you say that they're wrong? And if that system showed up on the scene today and declared, we are Christian and began to unveil all of its craziness, unpack it out of the suitcase, everybody in the world would look at it and say, that's a cult. But because it's so old, it gets away with murder because it teaches a work salvation. That salvation is based upon a faith in Christ and their own version of works. So it's something to be careful about. And then he describes, this is what people have believed in concerning, uh, ancient men have believed in, and that is that the wicked man, he writhes in pain all his days. Now, this is uh, hardly veiled, what he's saying here. This description that he's going to give of the wicked man is basically a description of Job. Job is writhing in pain, a pile of ashes in front of him. The number, and the number of years is hidden from the oppressor. Dreadful sounds are in his ears, in pro. Verity, the destroyer, comes upon him, exactly as happened to Job. He does not believe that he will return from darkness, for the sword is waiting for him. He thinks he's going to die. He wanders about for bread saying, where is it? He's been reduced to poverty. He knows that a day of darkness is ready at hand. Death is near. Trouble and anguish make him afraid. They overpower him like a king ready for battle. For he stretches out his hand against God. He acts defiantly against the Almighty running stubbornly against him with his strong embossed shield. And so basically he's saying, uh, here's a description of the the wicked Job and how they've been described historically. And, oh, by the way, uh, couldn't I just be describing you to a T? And though he has covered his face with fatness and made his waist heavy with fat, in other words, this person, this wicked person is very, very prosperous, and we have to realize, you know, in this culture, we're all, you know, we're de- we deal with weight gain because food is cheap, it's accessible, all of those things. In the ancient world, uh, to be able to get fat was a luxury. It means you were wealthy to be able to have that much food uh, to be able to eat. And so he's talking about a wealthy man. So here is this wealthy man. He dwells in desolate cities. In other words, the end of his life is ends in desolation and loneliness, just like Job is, right? Uh, Now everything's lost and houses in which no one inhabits, which are destined to become ruins. You know, the walls fall in because of a wind, this kind of deal. Job doesn't sound like anyone. He will not be rich. nor will his wealth continue, nor will his possessions overspread the earth. This kind of man will lose all of his wealth. Job, that's what happened to you. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry out his branches, and by the breath of his mouth, he will go away. In other words, he'll die prematurely. Let him not trust in futile things, deceiving himself, for futility will be his reward It will be accomplished before his time, and his branch will not be green. He will shake off his unripe grape like a vine, cast off his blossom like an olive tree. For the company of hypocrites will be barren, and fire will consume the tents of bribery. They conceive trouble and bring forth futility. Their womb uh, prepares uh, deceit. And so... Job, uh, here he finishes with really kind of just an unspeakable cruelty uh, that, Job, you're a hypocrite. All of your gain that you got, you became the most famous man in the whole world and in the East. You had all of this wealth, all of this. Now we know that you were doing secret kind of deals. This was ill-gotten gain. And uh, you're dominated by sin. And these are the reasons for... All of your troubles, and again, the problem with all of this is is that this this is being heaped upon a parent 's heart, and what they 're saying to job is, not only is this your condition because of your secret sin, but you brought on the death of your children because of the life that you were living, and so this kind of terrible place that they stay in uh, in their uh, fear of uh, the possibility of what Job saying about himself could be true uh, because they didn't want a God. They wanted these are men that want to have a relationship with a religious formula and not a relationship with God. And uh, so they're afraid that, uh, uh, that if this is something, the possibility that could happen with God, that this could be something that would happen in their life it was so unthinkable that, again, they continue to pile on. And we'll stop there tonight and pick up Job's response um, next week. Let's stand together. If you're here tonight and you are not a Christian, you have never asked God, for the forgiveness of your sins and committed your life to God, put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. You need to do that tonight, and that's the way that you begin a relationship with God. And there are going to be pastors and men and women up in front after the service. We'd love to talk with you and pray with you to begin that relationship uh, tonight. Sometimes you come into a church like this and say, Well, my friend said it was a good church, so I came over because I was feeling depressed. And then I thought I couldn't feel any worse. And then you just read several chapters of the book of Job. So for you, the message is, is that God loves you. He wants to save you. You've been made for a relationship with him. And he'll save you, and he'll begin that relationship with you tonight. And everything changes in an instant. Our eternity changes. Our past is overwhelmed by... The victory of Jesus, our present has changed. Everything changes with him. So there's hope for you and hope in your situation. Job was in a place in human history where he is looking ahead in faith to the coming of the Savior. We're in a more enviable place where we are looking back in history upon the Savior who had come. Jesus is the Savior, and this relationship is available to you tonight. Come on forward and we'll pray with you this evening. If you need prayer for anything this evening, of course, they'd love to pray with you as well. Let's pray together now. Lord, thank you so much for timing your word tonight. And we ask that everything again as we began, that this is intended to accomplish in our lives, that 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 has occurred within our lives. We thank you for your word, just how diverse it is, how many different ways it puts truth into our heart and into our mind and our soul and our strength. And we thank you for the time of studying your word tonight. We've enjoyed a very nice fellowship with you tonight and with one another as we've done it. And we give you thanks for that. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Samuel will you close